1: Hey, today we're talking about the immense contribution of Pope Benedict, and, you know, we're a little, little late on the task here, but Pope Benedict XVI passed away weeks ago now, but, uh, hey, a lot to say. Pretty amazing, uh, yeah. 95 years, yeah. and uh, so Chris wanted to talk about our feelings this week. So I, just I
0: did, about- I did. I mean, tell me, Dennis, Jesse, who in your liturgical formation is more influential than Cardinal Ratzinger? Pope Chris Carsten. and there are a lot. Carstens. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, the two of us, yeah.
1: And David Fagerberg.
0: Yeah, no, I, for me, it's uh, Monsignor Mannion and David Fagerberg and, mm-hmm. and Joseph Ratzinger.
1: Yeah, right I have to agree.
0: have to agree. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then you became Monsignor Mannion Jr. Uh-huh. And David Fagerberg <laughs> Jr. And Pope Francis Jr. Yes. So you're Monsignor uh, again something. Uh, and it's pretty yeah. good. It's pretty good. I, I have to say, you know, when... Um, uh, when he was uh, elected pope, I was kind of in a uh, you know phase of my spiritual life where I wasn't really that active, and I really fell into the the social uh, claim, you know, that he was just this conservative, you know, rigorous traditionalist, and because that's all I heard from you know mainstream media and you know things like that. And, uh, you know, really rediscovering what he uh, was about and what he had to offer the church and, and his wisdom was a real joy to kind of dive into and and to, and to learn more.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, we want to end this podcast, you know, with some of his thoughts on the Eucharist. But before we get to that, I mean, you know, uh, Dennis, you wrote a, you wrote a little book, <laughs> a big book, actually uh uh and it was good called for beating a, your children with <laughs> it was called uh hunting in nails uh tenderizing
1: ar- meat all right what was it <laughs> okay. called catholic church architecture and the spirit and of the, the liturgy, liturgy okay, which was not you-
0: my first title choice but uh, oh, really yeah oh was that uh, one of kevin's ideas
1: the first title was Catholic Church <laughs> Architecture, colon, a skin for liturgical action. Yeah, my favorite line. No, 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 no. Well, you know, my uh, my kind of intellectual hero is Bill Westfall, who was the teacher of mine in graduate school, who wrote a book called Architectural Principles in the Age of Historicism because his intellectual guru, Rudolf Itkovar, when he was in grad school, wrote a book called Architectural Principles in the Age of Humanism. So I wanted to call mine Architectural Principles in the Age of the church, which oh, is, what brilliant. The, that is what the catechism so brilliant. Uh, speaks of our age, right? Yeah. Which is the time between the Old Testament and the heavenly future. Oh, that's so and uh, But then Kevin talked me out of it because he thought no one would understand it. And Catholic Church architecture colon is much easier to read, you know, than architectural principles in the age of the church. But he's right. He's right. He was right in the long run. But the reason I did that is because... Ratzinger came from a long line of title stealers, right? So he's a little, mm. profi- not perfidious, what's the word when you steal things? Anyway, he stole the title from Roman R. Gordini, mm. his book, Spirit of the Liturgy. And he stole his title from, who was it, Caranti, from the late 19th century. That's right? And so uh, there was this triple theft here. It's like, what the heck? Why not? But the reason I wanted to steal that title is because I started reading his Book Spirit of the Liturgy, and there's a section on sacred architecture in there. And when you read it, you're like, eh, the first time I read it, I was like, there's not much in here. You know, it's sort of breezy talk about churches are good. It's like, what is the big deal with this Red Singer guy? Then there was this one sentence: the temple, as well as the synagogue, entered into Christianity. And you hmm. breeze by that, and you're like, so what? Then he said, without understanding this, you can't understand priesthood or sacrifice, or victims, or Eucharist, or church architecture was where I took it. And I was like, that is the key thing, right? Everybody was talking about churches as meeting houses, as Jesse skins for liturgical action. And the Temple of Solomon, Temple of Jerusalem, was not a skin for liturgical action. It was a place outside of space and time. It was a microcosm of the whole universe. It was an image of the mystical, what would become the mystical body of Christ. It was heaven and earth. It was the veil, and then the veil was torn. And so this building was deep with ideas. And uh, all I knew before that was I like traditional stuff, and some people don't. And some people don't like traditional stuff, and some people do. And I had some reasons, but then, ah, uh, this building, church building, is an image of of the universe. It's the union of heaven and earth. It's Christ, right? Who is the microcosm of all things, right? The, the infinity dwindled to infancy, as uh, that famous Jesuit poet said. Whose name, I can't remember right now. Do you know who I'm talking about? The American Jesuit poet. Hmm. Uh, he's famous. Go. He's His name, you would know it if I told you. I can't think of it right now. Uh, hmm. And that was it. That was the change. And just so happened that I visited the Holy Land at that time too and was doing a lot of reading on the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. So that was the key thing. Ratzinger single-handedly rescued liturgy from what he would have said would be a Protestant excess probably, which is synagogue only, right? They're only, the temple is obsolete. There's no more need for... Vestments and rituals and sacrifice and all that stuff is very, very, very important. If you're still going to talk about victims and sacrifice and temple and priests.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, not just uh, the, the Jewish roots of, of our faith, but even the consummate roots that you talked about, the heavenly and eschatological ones, too, is uh, I think what he did for, um, I don't know, what seems to be lit- our liturgical thinking is he just he made it so broad, just gave such a broad, wide perspective on the liturgy that it does encompass you know, these Jewish roots. It does encompass the Garden of Eden and nature and the entire cosmos, the stars and the moon and the sun. Uh, Everything's a part of uh, our liturgical celebrations. It does uh, encompass the heavens above us right now and the heavens that will be coming to us uh, in the future. And so, you know, liturgists have this reputation of being, you know, very myopic, and you know, concerned uh, about uh, you know rubrics and uh, ceremonial details and things like that. And I, I love that that first you know section of the spirit of the liturgy. It's called liturgy and life: the place of liturgy in reality. I mean, so I, I think many would be tempted to think, oh, well, here's this book coming out by this kind of very uh, liturgically minded person. It's going to be about rubrics and history and ceremony and uh, ritual and stuff like that and it those things are you know not irrelevant to his discussion but no no he's starting at you know 35,000 feet he's 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 expanding our liturgical minds to see the you know the great uh mystery that's 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 so much bigger than any of us could have uh, could have thought so
1: I, yeah, I read I recently know. that he made the deal that he would only be the prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith if he were still allowed to do research and write books. That was the deal he cut with John Paul II because he didn't want to do that. I mean, who wants to be in charge of that office? He said he didn't really speak Italian very well until he moved uh, to Italy in 1981. So imagine trying to run a curial office in the Vatican and your Italian's not very good. And then he eventually learned it. I was reading about uh this is from the, you know, Archbishop Genswine's uh, book that's causing all the stir right now that he learned Italian by listening to 33 and a third records back in the day and didn't really pay too much attention um, until he had to actually live in Italy. Terrible job, right? He doesn't want to do this job. And then John Paul's like, no, I need you. I need you. I need you. All right. Well, only if I get to still write books. And then he writes books when he's a pope. That's kind of an amazing thing. Jesus Which is another people. job he didn't want. Right, exactly. <laughs> who would who would want it? Right, that's what they say. If you want it, you shouldn't be the one who has it.
0: Hey, don't they uh, have a room called the Room of Tears or something mm-hmm. like that? Is that mm-hmm. is that a real thing? I don't know.
1: I don't know if it's real, but that's the story. Yeah. That that's the room right next to my children's bedroom. <laughs> where I'm just like
0: I'm just like go
1: to sleep, please. <laughs> but that's the room Kim is in when you come home from work. It's like, <laughs> spending the day with the kids. That's why I'm not at my home office today. Yeah, Uh, there you go. So here's a guy who's so many thoughts, I think 62 books, who knows how many articles. And not only are they, you know, little pinpoint studies of some theologian you've never heard of, they're life-changing ideas that change Mm -hmm. things. I know, I don't even know where he said this, but I know the sentence or the idea, roughly the sentence was, liturgy is not something we make, but something we discover man when that settles in there's a pre-existing reality and our Mm -hmm. our task is to reveal it pull the veil away from the the temple and see what's on the other side of it and make it present in our world
0: that's the kind of thing
1: that isn't just studying saint john of wherever and their obscure little manuscripts that's an idea that it's like dynamite
0: yeah and i i I suppose you know if you're listening to liturgy guys you're you know this you're, you've been oh. no, you you've been getting a lot of uh, Pope Benedict stuff for a long time because that's what who's formed us. But um, I mean, that was a revolutionary thing, unfortunately. You know, maybe thirty or forty years ago, because there was a, it seemed to be a mindset that uh, yeah, you had to be creative and it had to, had to tailor the celebration to this group, that group, this city, that state, uh, this age, this temperament, whatever. And to a certain degree, that's right, but it's only to a certain degree that there is this pre-existing reality called, uh, you know, Christ offering himself eternally to God the Father and Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's what we're trying to tap into uh, and conform what we do, you know, into that. You know, another one of these lines, Dennis, is that, uh, you know, he'd say, you know, that the, the liturgy needs to return God to the center. The you're liturgy like, needs to return God to the center. <laughs> I, I did that, that because Jesse loves
1: when I, <laughs> when is, I do my really bad oh, imitation so No, I love, I love it. Yeah. I wish you did the whole episode this week. <laughs> in the, okay, at least he's
0: doing this from now on. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but you, think, uh, you would think, duh. I mean, right? Obviously, God's at the center of the liturgy. Uh, that, that, too, was something that needed to be said once upon a yeah, time. Yeah, there's
1: a lot of congregationalism. And,
0: oh, there is. Know. There was. There, yeah, there is to a lesser degree, mm-hmm, but a lot of mm-hmm. that's because of you know, how uh, the Holy Father, how Pope Benedict taught us to to look differently at uh, the sacred liturgy. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's a good to kind of stop and step back and think about his impact on on the liturgy, but even, and maybe we can just say a couple of things here, Uh, we'll pick them up later, but uh, some things specifically about the Eucharist, and the one that comes to my mind, and then I'll Hand it back to you, uh, Dennis. Uh, with with some, I'm of not us. done talking about
1: my feelings yet, Chris. So. All right, <laughs> well, keep going. This,
0: this is going to be a whole other se- season eight. The liturgy guys, our feelings about Pope Benedict. <laughs> no, uh but, you've opened I, the floodgate. <laughs> one of the, floodgates. the, it's all right, it's all right. One of the, uh, one of the Eucharistic uh, things that I think was uh, groundbreaking, or a, certainly a huge recovery, was his notion of sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, and recovering it uh, in large part uh, from Saint Augustine because i think it, what he says in the spirit of the liturgy is that you know most people are laboring under a great misunderstanding when it comes to uh the notion of sacrifice which is hugely uh, uh unfortunate because the the essence of jesus's mission was a sacrifice and the heart of The baptized is a sacrifice, and the center of the mass is a sacrifice. And to misunderstand what a sacrifice is, is just going to lead to all sorts of problems. And what he'll go on to say in that book is that, you know, most people think sacrifice is destruction and pain and loss and those things. And while he doesn't deny that those can be aspects of sacrifice, the true essence and what makes a sacrifice acceptable to God the Father is this loving union with God. You know, even it, it might be painful, but it's God doesn't want your pain. That's not why Jesus's sacrifice was acceptable because, you know, he was being murdered by us or tortured by us. But he finally saw a heart that was fully given over to him. And that's what sacrifice is for Jesus, for the mass, for me and things like that. And, and you know, I, I just see that as a huge uh, uh, recovery of a very key notion, uh, especially when it comes to the Eucharist. So how do you sacrifice? And this will be a a podcast uh, later in the season. You know, how is it that you participate in the sacrifice of the mass? It's going to be by giving your whole being over to God the Father, uh, along with Jesus through the hands of the priest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if if you think sacrifice is something else, well, then you're just not going to be a full, active, and conscious participant in uh, the liturgy. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we
1: just... uh, you. Chris, I interviewed um, for Adamus Bulletin, uh, Mariush Billionev, which I can't remember uh, how to how to the name. But you know, he did that whole article on you know yep. Romans twelve one yeah. being in- integral, uh, and and this this uh, verse being going. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, <laughs> that's it. I mean, I can totally see why you can, you know, look at that as an entirely Benedictine uh you know benedict the 16th type yeah. of uh, thought process right? oh yeah i mean I, fact,
0: I i haven't read as nearly as much as i'd like to but romans 12 one has to it's just all over the place that the line you just read from romans twelve one is everywhere so i'm sorry Dennis not say
1: yeah just in reading up you know i just wanted to find something fairly quick you know pope benedict on the eucharist or cardinal Ratzinger on the eucharist so there are three of his corpus christi homilies that are easy to find online um and one of them was in 2010, and he was talking precisely about this. That makes the point that Jesus is not a priest in the normal sense. He doesn't come from the priestly line. He doesn't have a father who's a high priest. He's more of a prophet, right? He's out in the desert, and he's talking, and he's teaching. And so if he's going to be a priest, his priesthood has to be a different kind of priesthood. And he compares him to Melchizedek, who was this kind of perfect priest who offered bread and wine. And then um, this talk about love that you're just saying is that, his passion is presented as a prayer and an offering. So he's not offering something else. He's not offering bread and wine. I mean, excuse me, he's not offering bowls anymore. He's offering himself. And so what was a, a kind of dead sacrifice of first fruits or something is now himself as the, the prayer, the offerer, the offering. They're all the same. Hopefully, we'll get around to this article I've written for James Paul's Catechetical Review. More Jean Hanee to talk about. It was very exciting uh, to me. But he makes the point that a priest can't offer a victim – he can't offer himself as a victim because he'll die, right? It's suicide. Hmm. So you have to offer something else in his place, and then you have all kinds of things, right? Animals and fruits and bread and grain and all that stuff. But Christ was the only one who could offer himself and not be conquered by death, but instead uh, conquer death. So this was the perfect uh, sacrifice of love. And he threw this line in here. He was heard – precisely because of his total abandonment to the father's will. So I thought about that. It's like, hit me for a second. Well, why doesn't God hear us? Of course, God understands what we ask, but hearing, I think means something else. Like grants says what we ask for, because he knows what's good for us is only what's in accordance with his will. And so Christ's fundamental thing was, I come to do your will. And of course, then it's going to happen. So he also made an interesting point about made perfect. That uh Although he's a son of uh, a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect. And he talks about the Greek word um, teleotheis, I guess is how you say it, which was actually the word that was used for the sacrificial animals that were offered because he had to offer a perfect sacrifice. So he would ask God to make them perfect before they were mm. uh, given and it's uh, from the Pentateuch. It always means the consecration of the ancient ancient priests. Can this be made perfect, a perfect sacrifice? And so, when you hear these lines about what Christ learned, even though he was the Son of God, he brought, he made this humanity uh, perfect, and then becomes this true priest, true victim, true offering, just a short little homily, which you could, you know, be a tourist in Rome and it's in Italian and you're hot and you're not really listening. (laughs) Corpus Christi in the Mm -hmm. middle of the summer. Then you stop and think, Oh yeah, the Greek word, the Greek root goes back to the um, the Pentateuch first five books of the Bible. And then here is why he's really a priest. And here's why he's this perfect priest, even though he doesn't come from the priestly line. And I used a a, a sentence in the beginning that he was a strange priest or an unexpected Mm -hmm. priest or something like that, Mm -hmm. that uh, surprised me. Um, was Jesus a priest? And then he says the Eucharist tells us, right? Because the Eucharist is the act of that offering and uh, also the victim. And so, yeah, he's a priest, but he's also the victim in the, in the place of that offering. Just amazing. So, sort of life changing ideas.
0: That's all. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, one little homily.
0: Every homily should be uh, Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing with your life, Dennis? <laughs> Not. Not enough, <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> uh, You know, there's some people you meet that are, you know, they're so awesome that they're inspiring. Oh, thank, then, you, thank, you. Then, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. What? Then, then they're so awesome, they're almost discouraging because you're like, oh man, I'm just, I'm not, I am not that. very good at all. <laughs> that
1: for those people, just go to the uh, Carson the Johnson phone. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll perk right back up. Oh uh, you know. uh, yeah. Well, you know. What another thing? This is back to my feelings or what my personal interpretation. Another thing that's been super duper helpful for me, and when I teach it to students, they're just amazed. Which is the whole discussion that he has as the spirit of Vatican II mm-hmm. versus the text of Vatican II, or the the um, hermeneutic of continuity versus the hermeneutic or hermeneutic of reform versus the hermeneutic of discontinuity. I waited how long, and I don't know. Maybe the world has waited too. For what is the spirit of Vatican II? Why are people saying this is in the spirit of Vatican II when it's not in the text of Vatican II and it doesn't seem to come from the intentions of Vatican II? You know, do you guys know this? You know this, Chris. You know this, Jesse? His famous speech he gave to the Roman Curia. Was it 2008 oh. or 2010? I don't know, um, I don't know it.
0: No, was it was first two thousand. It was December twenty second, two thousand and
1: five. Five. Okay. So he's not Pope yet. Or is he Pope? No, he's not Pope. Yeah, yet. he's Pope. He's oh, pope. he's Pope. It's his first Christmas address to the courier. <laughs> this is why I need Chris around. I have ideas. He has knowledge. There's a difference. Uh, he has ideas too. But, um, And he, said, he makes the point that the spirit of Vatican II, and this is my paraphrasing of it, is the idea that there were conservatives at Vatican II. There were liberals at Vatican II. There were people in between. And they tended to think of the council not as something guided by the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the life of the church, but as a political battle. And the left-wingers and the right-wingers were going to have their way. And if the right-wingers hadn't thrown all those roadblocks up, then the left-wingers would have had the true council. And then the council texts were fundamentally untrustworthy because the, those chant people put in lines like, you know, chant has pride of place. Or those Latin people had ideas like mm. Latin is the language of the church. Or those people who say there is no change that must be done unless the good of the faithful actually require it. And it mentions sacrifice nine times in Sacrosanic and Trillium. These are all those pesky conservative things that we had to get in the text just to get people to sign it. But the spirit of Vatican II was thwarted. And so the true spirit is not the text. It's the ideas that go beyond the text based on the things that didn't make it because the pesky conservatives got in the way. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. That's what the argument was, right? Right. So the texts are not untrustworthy. You don't read the text. You move out of your own wish for what the spirit of Vatican II should have done, except that it didn't do it. So therefore, it's a fundamentally untrustworthy document, which is how we're all living, right? What Mm -hmm. do we do with that Chan a place in the church? Latin is the language of the church, and then we don't do it. Or you could say, how did the concilium Interpret Vatican II. They were definitely in the spirit of Vatican II, in some ways, going way beyond what the council actually uh, permitted and asked for. And so this is how Ratzinger summed it up. And that has that was another life-changing changing mm-hmm. moment. The text is trustworthy. The spirit of is open to being um ransacked or what's the word hijacked mm-hmm. by people who think they know what the council should have said <laughs> and so this is the classic argument you know with the, the liturgy director who's got ideas that are contrary to the text or some teacher or professor or whatever you look like you want to say something chris you're stroking your your are well, i was just i was just thinking too uh like imagine if you said that about something else in your life like you're at work and uh you know you're you're playing solitaire and your boss comes by, like, what are you, what are you doing? And you just said, well, it's in the spirit of the work that I do, (laughs) you know, like what? (laughs) Well, right. What he says, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of a council that a council is the coming together of these, you know, leaders, right. They've been given the commission to carry on the faith from one generation to the other under the headship of Peter. Right. So you have this mystical body and microcosm there and together with Peter, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they speak Christ's words in the world. And the words are in the text. I remember Father Larry Hennessy at Mendeline Seminary said this many, many years ago. He said, for us, and it wasn't me because he was not my generation. He said, for us, Vatican II was an event. For our seminarians today, Vatican II is a text. And hmm. so he was wanted to hmm. bridge that gap. And so uh, it's an interesting thing. You know, the, it's, we have the same arguments about the Constitution, Right. Do we need an amendment to change it, or we can just interpret things into it that we wish had been there uh, from the beginning?
0: And so this was a major, major idea, and it's so helpful. Yeah. I've often thought it was, I don't know if he said this, or I'm coming making this up, but you know when you do a scriptural interpretation, there's these a literal and uh, spiritual senses of the sacred scripture, but the spiritual mm-hmm. always has to be founded upon and grown out of the literal meaning. They can't, it can't be disconnected from that. And I often think the spirit of Vatican II needs to be rooted in the texts of Vatican II similarly. And uh, you know, whether he said that explicitly or not, I think that's yeah.
1: kind of footnote. Liturgy guy season, uh, what, four or five. When did we do and Concilium line by line? Yeah. Four or five. I don't know. a long time We should ago. do it.
0: We should do it again.
1: Dennis, didn't you just send us an email of somebody who's like, I'm, I'm going through that right now. I mean, I get, I constantly... Yeah, but she didn't say what season it was. Well, I'm constantly yeah. getting people saying I'm 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 listening to that, you know, that, mm-hmm. that season. So that that was a big right. deal for us. And Chris still didn't want us to do it. So he's right. still he's sorry we did it. He I am sorry we did it. Have never done <laughs> If it we again. hadn't if we <laughs> hadn't reined him in, we'd still be doing that. Right
0: Use <laughs> guys, hey, well, I better rein you two in, or uh, uh we'll never get to the liturgy yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. question.
1: We have a Benedict, a Pope Benedict question this week. From so. from him? No, 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 oh, okay. no, 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 about dear, dear, dear Chris Costens, I hear you're a very good director of liturgy. I have a question about the placement of the <laughs> in the Vatican. Could you please call me back? Goodbye. Uh, that is going to be my new ringtone for Chris whenever he calls me. I think that oh, I'm excited about that. Mail call. Oh, oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Hello, Liturgy Guys. Hello, Jesse. Do we have a Liturgy Question? We do have a question. This week, we have a question from Mark F. Mark F. says, hello, Liturgy Guys. Hello, Mark F. (laughs) Chris, be nice to Mark. Mark. Hello, Mark. (laughs) Mark says, in honor of the passing of Pope Benedict XVI, I'm wondering about the way he set up the altar for mass. My parish priest does it the exact same way that he did it when he was pope. Is this permissible or is there a better way to arrange the altar according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal? Good Mm. question, Mark. F. Well, let's uh, let's get some of the basics down here. The way that Pope Benedict was known for doing this has become called the Benedictine Arrangement. Different from the Benedict option, right? But the Benedictine Arrangement, where <laughs> well, the six candles... That would be yeah. funny if that was the option, like written in... that the- You could do the Benedict option. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it is a Benedictine option. Um, there are six candles on the actual altar and across the altar cross, in the middle of them, and they would be essentially reading like a screen in front of the priest, between the priest and the people, almost as if you had an old high altar facing east with the six candles on it and the cross on it, except that it's all turned around 180 degrees. Now, I don't know that Pope Benedict spoke to exactly why he was doing this, but what I have Mm. as a guess is that he was trying to make the point that even if you're saying Mass versus Populum for the people, you're still saying Mass ad deum, right? So east-west isn't the issue. The issue is that Christ is this bridge to the Father and that the priest does not say mass to the people even when he Mm -hmm. is facing the people because versus populum means toward or facing rather than to, right? It's not to the people, but in facing their direction. That's my guess. Now, the Mm -hmm. question is, he's Pope. He can do what he wants. Uh, Is that something legal? My Yes, I don't know. You already know these things better than I do, Chris. I have an idea, but what's your idea first? <laughs> no,
0: no. I want you to hear you. I want to hear you commit to an answer.
1: Well, I don't have the general instruction in front of me right now, <laughs> but it says things like nothing may be on the altar except right, and then we'll mm-hmm. say the cross mm-hmm. and candles. Then somewhere mm-hmm. else, it doesn't give permission for candles. So there's a little uh, oh, problem in the general instruction itself. So my guess is, in a generous read, you could say, sure. Now, there are people who might argue that it's contrary to the spirit of Vatican II, right? Because it interferes with the visual connection between the priests and the people. For me, personally, I would say this is what you do if you can't actually face Adorientum. It's Adorientum in the spirit of (laughs) Adorientum without actually being to the East. What do you think? All right,
0: Dennis, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. You're of exactly the same mind as Pope Benedict here that's oh, precisely so, his rationale I'm
1: very happy to hear that question so precisely well. <laughs> his rationale
0: for for that arrangement see i think he would say ideally the liturgy of the eucharist would be celebrated ad orientum but see one of the things he didn't want this was you know kind of one of his uh, uh ways of operating he didn't want to be constantly legislating and changing things and so his 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 legislation was very subtle and rare, frankly, and he thought this would be a, a compromise for the time being versus, say, an ad orientum that would help make the point that Mass, as you say, is offered together to God the Father. A couple, a couple other things, though. So, um, strictly speaking, uh, you can't do in your parish what the Pope, what Pope Benedict was doing is his parish. Why? You guys should know the answer to this because his parish was the papal seat, uh it, because he was the bishop of that diocese oh, in right, yeah. when he celebrates mass can have seven candles. so strictly speaking, Benedict had seven candles on his altar. that middle one was right exactly with the uh the crucifix, and so you better not do that. You can have six candles, but you can't have seven. um the thing that confuses me actually, Dennis, about this is not the candles. I think uh I think it's clear. Unless I'm missing something, which I probably can be or would be, but the germ says that all the candles can be on the floor or on the altar. So I don't, I don't think that's an issue. I think it's the cross that is the sticking point, right? Because it does say clearly that you can have uh, there should be a cross in the sanctuary that's visible to the people, and if there is one, the processional cross is put away. And so, what is this cross in the middle of the altar? Is that a cross to help the priest or? Is it a cross that is to be seen by the people, in which case which direction does it face? Uh, and if there is so, it's the cross to my mind that's a little bit harder to uh, to see how it integrates with the the current legislation. So, but Benedict was the supreme legislator, legislator, and Pope Francis is now, and Francis does the same arrangement, although he he moves the the candles more to the angle more to the corners if you want to of the uh, altar so there's more of a, a gap between the candles but it's pretty much a variation of the benedictine altar arrangement for the entire papacy of pope francis so anyway those are my two cents well here's what the general instruction of the roman missal actually
1: says uh, number 308 likewise either on the altar or near it there is to be a cross with the figure of christ crucified upon it a cross clearly visible to the assembled people so it sounds mm. like it is permissible to be mm. permissible mm. to be on the altar, but how you does that mean the corpus has to be visible to the people, or just mm. the cross has to be visible to the people? It's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Or, or is it crisscross? Mm. Uh, one thing. <laughs>
0: one, moving along. One thing. When it does speak of <laughs> ah, those it says uh, a cross with a figure of Christ crucified upon it. And if so, if it doesn't say that there, Dennis, maybe. You know, maybe the corpus would be facing the priest and the cross to the other. Ah, uh, Yeah, see, it's not, I don't know, at least in my mind, it's not obvious how this gels with the legis- legislation, but.
1: Anyway, all I know is that I'm glad that Chris is so loquacious because it gave Dennis enough time to look yeah, this okay. up. Hey, we <laughs> help each,
0: Dennis and I help each other out, don't we?
1: This is yet another reason why orientum solves a lot of problems because you can have one cross <laughs> the reason that people can both see, and so that's sort of uh, another yeah. clean way to uh, to solve that problem. But I guess we're not there yet in the world, so
0: we'll, we'll do. Have we ever yeah. done an Antum, uh podcast? I don't think we
1: have. We should. Let's do it. You know, we we might have. It's been some time, um, but I'll look it up. All right. Uh, Mark F., I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you. And God, God bless.
0: Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are
1: Chris Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis Big McNamara, and Jesse Y O Y O weiler our producers are Michael Don't Be So coy," and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano.
0: Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflect. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Franz Siskin.
1: And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shrivam and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the The Liturgy Liturgy Guys.